0: You are listening to the Sex and Chronic Illness Podcast, part of the Invisible Not Broken Network. I'm your host, Dr. Lee Phillips. On this show, I have amazing conversations with chronic illness warriors, sex therapists, sex educators, and other professionals in the field of sexuality. And what do they all have in common? The mission to crush the myth that people with chronic illness and other disabilities are not sexual and that sexual intimacy is paramount to the quality of life. And every episode, we offer unique stories paired with education, actionable tips, tricks, and takeaways on all topics relating to sex and chronic illness. Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Lee Phillips. I'm the host of the Sex and Chronic Illness podcast here on the Invisible Not Broken Network. Welcome to episode one. I'm so excited to be here and I am so excited about this podcast because it is needed. So today it's going to be about me. I'm going to share with you my story and why I decided to do this podcast. So I'll start in the present and then I'll backtrack a little bit. So I'm a licensed psychotherapist, and I have been for 12 years. I'm in private practice in Arlington, Virginia, where I treat chronic illness and sexual dysfunction, but I also specialize in sex and couples therapy altogether. I'm a licensed clinical social worker in Washington, D.C., Maryland, and Virginia, and I'm also a certified sex therapist by the American Association of Sexuality Educators, Counselors, and Therapists, also known as ASECT. I've been in private practice for more than a decade, working with couples on sexuality after chronic illness, and I've lectured on several topics. Some of those topics have included sexuality, chronic pain, preventative services, anxiety and stress management, caregiving stress, depression in the elderly, mindfulness and cognitive strategies for chronic pain, reclaiming sexuality for couples with chronic illness, ethical decision-making, assessment of mental disorders, and exploring sexual communication, freedom, and pleasure for gender minorities with chronic illness, pain, and disabilities. I've also published before. I published in the Journal of Bachelor of Social Work where I assisted other researchers in conducting a research study on LGBTQ affirmative teaching at historically black colleges and universities. I had received a doctorate in education from Grand Canyon University in 2017, where I studied organizational leadership with an emphasis in behavioral health. It, it's kind of funny. I actually moved to DC to work in behavioral health administration. I was working at a job back in Williamsburg, Virginia, and the Hampton Roads area where I'm from, and I, you know, I I wanted to change. I wanted to. to to be in a city again. I I really miss city life. You know, I I felt like after I finished my doctorate where I was living at the time in Hampton, Virginia, it it really wasn't serving me a purpose. So I ended up applying for a job up here in DC at MedStar Washington Hospital Center, where I took a job as a clinical manager. And at that time, I also decided to work in private practice part-time just so I could still have that clinical work under me. I really wanted a different change in my career. I really wanted to work in administration and I have to tell you something. I hated it. I did not like it. I did it for six months and I thought, what am I going to do now? And so I ended up joining the private practice that I was with part-time and I ended up going full-time. And during that time, I started working with several different clients, uh, specializing mainly with like LGBTQ folks. And I was wanting to expand my career in private practice. And I ended up seeing an ad that was on the listserv. I ended up joining the Greater Washington Society of Clinical Social Work. And on that listserv was a building your private practice workshop. So I thought, why not go ahead? Why not take the plunge and go to this workshop? And I did, and it was facilitated by a woman who is also one of my mentors now. Gail Gutman, she's amazing. And when I was there, you know, she asked me, she said, you know, what type of populations do you work with? And I said that I work a lot with folks that have chronic illness, chronic pain, and other disabilities. And she said, well, have you ever thought about becoming a sex therapist? Because there are so many people out there, individuals, couples, all people, that really want to reclaim their sexuality. They want to be sexual again. And have you ever thought about that? And I didn't even think about that because my goal was to actually go get me a master's in public health because I was very interested in epidemiology, study, in disease. And so I ended up taking the route on pursuing my sex therapy certification. And so that's what really started working uh, with sexuality and chronic illness. I thought to myself, well, I can take my work from working in chronic illness and chronic pain, and I can combine it with sexuality. And that's really where everything started to take place. So hopefully Gail will listen to this episode. And I really have to thank her because she was the driving force in me pursuing this. And then it kind of just exploded and kicked off. I started speaking on the topic. Um, I've been a guest on, I don't know how many podcasts, probably over 30. And I've been the resident sex therapist uh, on the Invisible Not Broken podcast. And so talking to Monica Michelle and Eva, who are the podcasters for Explicitly Sick and the Human Care podcast, they thought, you know, why don't you just start your own podcast? So here I am, I decided to take this on and I'm very excited about it. I think it's a podcast that's going to be highly needed And the whole mission is to really look at crushing the myth that folks with disabilities and chronic illness are not sexual. And we know that that's not true. And so I want to normalize sexuality with folks that have disabilities. And I'm hoping to have some amazing people on the show. I've already had quite a few folks that have already reached out to me. So thank you so much. And I plan on having you on the show, um, along with couples and Triads and polyamorous folks, like I just want to have all types of people on here and talk about all different forms of sexuality. Everything from vanilla to alternative sexuality, such as kink and non-monogamy, and really blend that together on why folks practice that type of sexuality and why they're doing that. But most of all, it's really to give people hope that they can be a sexual being because we are all sexual beings. It doesn't matter who you are, you know, we love pleasure and we deserve pleasure. And so I really want to talk about that on the show from different lenses of perspectives. But we really have to understand that about 40% of the U.S. population is chronically ill. Um, That's alarming. And the research shows that at the end of this year, that number is going to double. So that's basically almost a third of the population is really now living with multiple chronic conditions. And when I say multiple chronic conditions, um, that's more than one. So for an example, someone could have you know, diabetes and then they could also have major depressive disorder. They may have a diagnosis of fibromyalgia and also have a diagnosis of anxiety and depression, which is usually common with chronic illnesses to have some type of mental health problem that may be gone on as well. And also, the sexual dysfunctions that can come with chronic illness. We know that there can be low desire and arousal. You know, a lot of people talk about having low energy. And by having that low energy, there is a decrease for sex. There can be those that identify with having a vulva or women, vaginal tightness or dryness. There's dry orgasms that tend to happen, retrograde ejaculation tends to happen. And there's also a decrease in orgasmic intensity. But here's the thing, we have to realize that just because there may be some type of dysfunction, and and let me add that the word dysfunction, I don't really like, so I'm probably going to stop using it. It just sounds so negative. So I really like to say challenge. So we have sexual challenges. And in my office, I have so many people that come in with these sexual challenges. And they will come into my office saying, hey, you know, I went to my doctor to be prescribed this medication, probably spent about 20 to 30 minutes with my doctor, and no one talked about sexuality. And I was afraid to talk about sexuality because I was afraid I was going to be judged or shamed. You know, I've had people come into my office and say, you know, I went to my doctor and asked about sexuality and they said, well, aren't you just happy that you're alive? Why are you even thinking about sex? So there's this ongoing myth that people with disabilities and chronic illness are not sexual and it's not true. Now there is the idea that you are asexual where you don't desire sex, you're not sexual at all, but that's not true. So what I want to do is I want to really crush that myth and I can't say that enough. So, you know, recent research really does suggest, that sexual dysfunctions in people may be one of the least talked about symptoms of a chronic illness. And what I really want this podcast to do is apply to everyone who are heterosexual, gay, lesbian, queer, transgendered, Kinky, and also those in polyamorous relationships. You know, people who battle static or dynamic illnesses will also benefit from the show. Now, static illnesses are those whose symptoms and treatments remain the same over time. And dynamic illnesses, those are illnesses that generate cycles of relapse and remission. So for an example, multiple sclerosis does that, and so does fibromyalgia. And those are mainly the clients that come and see me, people that have a lot of generating relapses. And I want this podcast to um, teach people and people and partners and you know partners that are in relationships that it's okay to be sexual, to be in your body, and to work as a team instead of opponents or avoiders to really address shame, resentment, and the disruption of the sexual relationship. And so having that base, I think, is really going to help folks. And that's really why I wanted to do this podcast. So if I have couples on here, I really want them to work as a team instead of avoiders and really just for all people to learn what is possible and achievable when enhancing sexual awareness and sexual communication. Because what I have learned in my training is that sex at its heart, it is about communication. It's all about communication. And how do we navigate that? Um, There's a lot of research out there that talks about, you know, chronic disabilities and illnesses and how we want to integrate sexual communication with couples. I have some of my favorite researchers who are sex educators that research that area. And so what I've done is I've taken that research and I've applied it in my sessions with my clients. So that's really what I want to do here. And I'm really excited about it. But I want to share my story. And my story goes back to 2012. So in 2012, I was diagnosed with Lyme's disease. I'll never forget the day. It was like a cold morning, um, you know, very cold outside. And I remember waking up and I really felt like I couldn't even see. Everything was blurry, cloudy. I had a massive headache. I felt numbness throughout my body, my stomach. It felt like someone had gone into my insides and turned them. It was fucking horrible. That's the word for it. And I didn't know what was going on. I was very concerned. I'm like, is this the end? Am I having a stroke? Am I you know, having a tumor? At first, for the longest time, that's what I thought I had because I had a lot of the same symptoms of a brain tumor, but my vision was not blurry all the time. So I ended up immediately going to my doctor at the time. And, you know, she didn't really know what was going on with me. I was having migraine headaches, just feeling very terrible. You know, a lot of joint pain, um, muscle spasms. And I was at a very dark place. It was the scariest time of my life. If there was a dark hole, I was in that dark hole. And I she sent me to a neurologist and she didn't know what was wrong with me. So she said, guess what? We need to go further. We need to find out what's going on. So I'm gonna send you to a neurologist. And I thought, shit, all right, okay, whatever. So I go to this neurologist and I remember walking into his office and this man was so busy, he was talking so fast and I, he had a laptop in his hand, literally. He's like talking to me as he's typing on this laptop and I feel like shit. I'm like nervous. I'm anxious. I'm all over the place. You know, who likes going to the doctor? I know I don't like going to the doctor. Every time I go to the doctor, they take my blood pressure and it's always high because I have white coat syndrome. It's like my anxiety goes through the roof when I go to the doctor. (laughs) So he comes in and he starts talking to me and he starts asking me about my symptoms and he's doing all these tests with me. And, you know, after the appointment, he says, okay, like we're going to do some testing. I'm like, okay, all right. And I'm going to do an MRI on your brain and I'm going to do a bunch of blood work on you. And when you get all these results, don't, don't get nervous. You're going to get a lot of emails with the results or, and all of that. So, so I ended up getting the MRI done and just going to that appointment was terrifying because I've never had that done before. And I remember laying in this tube and I, seriously felt like I was in a spaceship. You know, it was crazy. And so it was very noisy and I was in there for over 45 minutes. And after that, I went home and I can't even tell you just the anxiety that was going through me. Cause I was still in pain. I had the joint pain. I had the headaches. I was having muscle spasms and you know, and I'll go into this later, but there is the first phase of a chronic illness, and that is the crisis phase. And that's what I was in. So I was working as a child and adolescent therapist at the time, I you know, didn't really like working with that population, I'll just be honest. I found it to be very difficult. It was never the teenagers, it was their parents. <laughs> their parents were very difficult. And, you know, you're working with a bunch of other systems. You're working with the Department of Human Services. You're working with, um, you know, the schools, just everyone. So I was in session one day. And I had my phone on silent because I was doing therapy. And I had a missed call. So I checked the message. And it was from the epidemiologist at the health department. And... She said, you know, I need you to call me back there. It's about your blood work. And at the time, I'll be honest, I didn't even know what an epidemiologist was. I had no idea. But then I started thinking about my epidemiology. I believe that is the study of disease. So I had a lot of fear. And as you can imagine, you know, they leave, she didn't really say much on my, on my voicemail. It was, hello, I need you to call me back. Here's my phone number. All right. So I tried calling her multiple times and of course I kept getting her her voicemail. So I went home that night and I remember I was in my doctoral program by the way and I had a paper too that night. Could not write the paper. I was a fucking wreck. So I you know emailed my professor and I said look I can't write this paper I'm not feeling very well can I please get an extension. He gave me the extension. I did not sleep that night of course as you can imagine and the next day I just remember feeling really bad, you know, I was still having symptoms. And I go back to my office that morning about to start my day and I call and she answers. And I'm like, what is going on here? You left me this message and she's like, oh yeah. She says, were you ever a boy scout? And I'm thinking, what the heck? You know, like, oh, uh, no, I wasn't. She's like, well, your blood test came back positive for Lyme's disease both your tests. And I have to tell you, I, I didn't understand why, because I, and I'll share this in a bit, I didn't understand why it was positive for Lyme, but at the same time, I was also relieved because there was an answer to what was going on. You know, you've know, you got these symptoms in a crisis phase and you don't know what to think. And a lot of people, when they're in that phase, they're, they're searching for a diagnosis. So she said that I was gonna have to follow up with my neurologist. I ended up following up with my neurologist. And <laughs> the first thing he said was, I hate it when the health department calls people first. And he, we talked about it and he asked if I'd been bitten by a tick. And I don't remember, but I will tell you, in Williamsburg, it's very wooded. I did not have a good signal on my cell phone. So I remember always going outside in the summertime talking on my phone and, and, and I had just gotten out of a relationship with someone and it was a painful experience for me. And at the time I was always calling this one best friend and just talking about it, you know, cause I didn't really know anyone up in Williamsburg. So I remember just being outside all the time, smoking cigarettes, walking up and down the sidewalk and what was interesting is that after a series of being outside barefoot, I did wake up one morning and I had a ring underneath my armpit. Now, remember, I worked with children and adolescents at the time. So I honestly thought it was ringworm. So I went to the CVS to get, you know, ringworm ointment <laughs> and I put it on there and it, it didn't go away and it actually got a little bigger. And then it was that following week when I got really sick. So I was able to backtrack that with the doctor, the neurologist. And so he ended up putting me on medication. It may have been doxycycline. It was one of the cyclones. I don't remember. This is 2012. And I started taking the medication and they were like horse pills and I had to take two a day one in the morning and one at night. And I just remember being sick all the time because it's an antibiotic, so it was like killing my stomach. And I remember just having to eat Greek yogurt every day to try to put probiotics back into my body. But that was a very difficult time for me. Now with Lyme's disease, you can be negative and still have it, and I'll go into that. But I did medication for three months. And I believe this was during the summer of 2012. And so I finished the medication. I went back to the doctor and they tested me again and it was negative. But here's the thing it is a spirochete bacteria that gets into your body and it digs into your tissues. So when the test comes back, it can show that you're positive or negative. And in this case, it was negative again. And the doctor told me, he goes, look, it's negative. This is a good sign. He said, however, you may still have this disease. So since 2012, I have been living with Lyme's disease. I don't have the symptoms that I had in the past, but I do have joint pain. And my joint pain comes when the seasons change. So I'm in Washington, DC, and you know we're going into the fall months now, and it's starting to get chilly outside. And I know it's coming. Every time the seasons change, I have joint pain. I also have headaches. Um, I've been on medication since 2009 for migraines. I've only had maybe three migraines since I started my medication, which is amazing. So that's another big reason why I went into this work, so I could help other people that have chronic pain conditions. And a lot of that chronic pain is due to a chronic illness. So that's my story why I got into that. and. I've been an advocate since then for people that are chronically ill and just hoping that I can be a voice. And one of the things that I've been doing since then is just really helping people with their sex lives because again, it's not talked about so much. And when I tell people that I'm a sex therapist, you won't believe the ton of bricks that they feel had been lifted off of them. The fact that they can come into my office and they can talk about sex. And they can talk about how to reclaim their sexuality. That's the most important piece of doing this work. And I'm hoping that I can just really get into great topics where we can talk about um, everything. You know, there's a lot in the research right now, for example, on people that are using kink and BDSM as a way to cope with chronic pain, which I find so fucking cool. And I really wanna be able to to talk about that and to talk about, you know, the great things that people are doing in their work by working with chronic illness. And I think that's gonna be what's gonna be so exciting about the show, is just talking about acceptance and chronic illness. So that's the big forefront of doing this. But I wanna tell you what people go through when they're having a chronic illness. And most of you that are gonna be listening to this you're gonna be identifying with this. So I talked about the crisis phase. So there is a crisis phase that happens. And usually at that crisis phase, that's when people are really looking for um, a diagnosis. And so once they have a diagnosis, then they're able to go into what we call the stabilization phase. And a lot of times that has to do with medication management. So there's some type of medical intervention that happens. But during that time, people may come into psychotherapy. I have had folks come in that are ill and they don't have a diagnosis yet and they're having a lot of anxiety and depression. So they're wanting to come in and talk. But I've also had people that have come in where they have had a diagnosis and now they're being stabilized or taking some type of medication management um, you know, to help them with their symptoms. And so they're wanting to stabilize. And so after that stage, we see a resolution stage where people are becoming more familiar with their symptoms and they're starting to do something what I call pace for pain, where they're listening to their body more and they're getting more familiar with their illness and with the pain that it causes. So, after that stage, we have something called an integration stage where you're integrating different parts of your life from your past into the present, which is amazing when that can happen. Sometimes that doesn't happen to everyone. And again, I wanna add that it really does depend on the type of disability that someone has. So being able to integrate little parts of the past into the present, which can be really powerful. So that is something that is critical because when you get into that integration phase, you know that your illness does not define who you are and it is one part of your life. Now that's when acceptance comes in. That takes a while, that's, that's not easy. And so when acceptance comes in, that's where we start to see people that really want to be sexual again. They know that they have an illness, they've identified with the symptoms, they may have accepted their illness, now they wanna be sexual whether they are single and they want to date again, or they've been in a relationship and now they're wanting to be sexual with their partner. So one of the things that always comes up in my work with any chronic illness is low energy. And so I always say, you have to find where your sexual peak is at. So when I had my Lyme's disease and I was very sick, the last thing I wanted to do was be sexual. Now I wasn't in a relationship, I had just broken up with someone when I was diagnosed but I was still sexual, I was hooking up with people. And, you know, it really affected my desire. I had no desire at the time, which led to not have an arousal because I'm one of those people where I have to admit I have more spontaneous desire where I think about sex and I want it right away. <laughs> Some people have responsive desire where there has to be something else that happens first before they get aroused and then they go into desire. So they may experience arousal first, than desire. I see that very common with my female clients that I have in sex therapy, but also there are men um, or other folks that can have that type of desire. But I just remember not being sexual until I accepted what was happening to me. I literally had to accept that, hey, this is a new body, this is a body that I have to pay attention to. And with accepting that, I knew that, hey, I I can be sexual, I may not have the sex that I had in the past, but I can still be sexual. Because I will tell you, I am a very sexual person. I love sex, I love everything about sex. That's probably another reason why I became a sex therapist. I enjoy it, I think we identify with our identity with it. I know I certainly do as a queer person. And why take that away from someone? Because what it comes down to is that we all deserve pleasure. So that's really what I was going through in my, um, in, my, in my journey until I got to acceptance. And it was at that point when I really, you know, wanted to have pleasure. I was thinking, man, I missed out on so much by being sick, but now I can really reclaim that. And so I wanted to be, start being an advocate for people and really get into this work And to be honest with you, I'm one of the only sex therapists in the DC that specializes in this. And there's not many sex therapists that do. So I'm really happy to be here and to bring this podcast into being to be able to share stories to give people hope that they can be sexual. But pleasure is something that we all deserve. And it's something that we all have. And so reclaiming that is really important. And so when we get to this phase of acceptance, that we go into, it's like, man, then we can get into so many things. And when I say so many things, I also mean many options because I have to say, that's what's great about sex is that you have so many options and you can get very creative with it, which is amazing. You know, you have to get creative with it. You have to try new things. So one of the things that I work on with my clients is really looking at sexual readjustment, which, you know, we'll get into, into this podcast later, and really being able to fight ableism. And, you know, which is the systematic oppression that affords privilege to people who are able body. And I really want, and that marginalizes individuals who are disabled. And so being able to come into a place and being able to share how you are disabled but you're also sexual and that you can love yourself for having a disability. So you know talking about the myth of people living with disabilities that it's not sexual. Well I have news for you a satisfying sex life it's one way of feeling healthy when so much of a person's life has changed due to a chronic illness and other disabilities. And what we can do is we can really learn to acknowledge loss, cope and build a relationship with their disability. Now that's a challenge, right? But this goes into the phases that I was talking about. A lot of times when people really get into this, um, they get into the phase of acceptance. It's like, okay, now, you know, I really think that I can be a sexual person. I can get into this work. Um, So, what we know is, is that with looking at um, disability, you know, we look at um, the fact that sexual intimacy, it is really paramount to the quality of life for some people. And that need does not need to decrease with a disability. And it's really important when living with a disability, right? Like I was saying a minute ago, I think that it's so, it can be a coping skill mechanism. Sex can be. Having an orgasm can help with pain relief. So we wanna be able to talk about that. And sexual expression, it's a part of personal identity and to strip sexuality of its significance or to silence it is to damage the very notion of being human. And that's what I wanna talk about too. This whole podcast is about one word, and that word is about hope. And I want that hope to shine through. There are people in the world who treat disabled people like desexualized children. That happens all the time, that you're not supposed to be sexual. Disabled people are often thought of as being incapable of having their own wants and desires. And because of that, there's also this misconception that people and interabled relationships where one partner is abled and the other one is not, are taking advantage of them. That's not true because I will be having couples on the show where one partner is abled body and the other one is not. So, what I'm kind of talking to you right now is just, just different themes that we're going to be talking about on the show that I'm really excited about. And, you know, we also need to talk about why sexual pleasure is so important. Well, it's important because it can enhance a relationship, right? It can promote intimacy. It can make you feel human again. It makes you feel good. It helps lay out the foundation of body acceptance and it really is the antidote of pain, both emotional and physical, right? And it's powerful in making us feel alive. That is the core reason why pleasure is so important. So there's many consequences of ignoring pleasure, right? We don't want to ignore that. We want to enhance it. So one of the things that we get as children, and I got these messages as a child, was this idea of negative sexual messages. You know, I remember being in family life class and the instructor saying, you know, if you're gonna have sex, you're gonna get an STI. And if you were a woman, if you're gonna have sex, you're gonna end up being pregnant. Well, I I didn't believe that. I thought to myself, because you're telling me this, you're, I actually wanted to go out and rebel. I wanted to have more sex. So if you're telling me I can't have sex, well then I'm gonna fucking go out and do it. And so that's how I thought about it. And, but when we get these negative messages as a child, it really starts to create our sexual self-esteem. Having a sexual self-esteem is really critical. And when you receive those messages and then you have a chronic illness and disability on top of it, you know, What happens is low sexual self-esteem, combined with the likes of physical limitations, diminished sensation, lack of um, escalating arousal, and difficulty with ejaculation, or any other things with an orgasm, it, it may make you seem pointless. So if you're having these sexual challenges, a lot of times it becomes internalized, right? I think that's one of the biggest things with anxiety. So, being a sexual being, and then having that internalized on you, when you do that to yourself, it can really make you believe that you're not supposed to be a sexual person. And I think that is the whole goal of sex therapy, right? It's coming in, it's laying it down like a puzzle, and it's trying to fit these pieces into where they need to go so you can be a sexual person. And also getting more familiar with your body, and the new body on top of that, right? You're in this new body now, and you're learning how to adapt to an illness. And so I think one of the things that I really try to talk about is sex positivity with my clients, because that is just critical. And sex positive movement and sex positive, sex positivity is big now. And it's big in our work and sex therapists and it really is an attitude toward human sexuality that regards all consensual sexual activities as fundamentally healthy and pleasurable, encouraging sexual pleasure and experimentation. And that's going to be big on my show, too. Being sex positive, normalizing it, um, accepting sex as a source of healing and joy. That's what it is for people. And, you know, you think about all these emotions that we have, right? Everything from, anger to depression to anxiety well sex heals that it can heal that and it allows us sex it really does allow us to build a connection in a disconnected world when you think about it right with everything that's going on right now um, in the world being able to just be sexual in your body that's amazing and so I want to talk about that and be able to share all of that and have different people that come on. And, and maybe it's gonna be interesting because having different folks that are on their own different journey, right? With chronic illness. Maybe having some people come on that don't have a diagnosis or they've been diagnosed with everything and they're trying to narrow that down. Have folks that are, have been diagnosed for a while and they wanna come on and give hope to other people and share what they did and reclaiming their sexuality. So it's going to be great. I'm going to have many topics. Um, you know, one that I'm very interested in talking about is kink is communication. I've got some sexuality, you know, educators that are going to come on and we're going to talk about that. Um, we're going to talk about how communication and negotiation is an integral part, majority of kink and BDSM interactions, and how we can use kink and BDSM To be able to cope with chronic pain, which I think is going to be amazing. And we're going to talk about all of these topics, everything from ethical non-monogamy to polyamory, because there are folks out there who get into a relationship, they have a chronic illness, and they'll talk to their partner and say, hey, you know, I do not have the desire for sex. I just don't. I don't feel very sexual but you are sexual and I want you to be sexual. So a lot of times I will have um, people that are in partnerships come into my office and I will help them negotiate contracts to open up their relationship to be able to be sexual again. And so giving, um, working on a contract to where one partner is able to go out and have another sexual partner. And so I talk a lot about that. And so we're going to discuss topics like that, too. But really, it's just to be a voice for people and um, to really have healing for folks. Um, That's really what we want to promote here. And that is the whole point, really, of, of all of our podcasts here on the network, is to normalize the fact that you can have just a great life despite having a chronic illness and how to live with that illness. One of the things that I'll probably talk about on the show too, because I think it's so important is to talk about shame where I'm going to have some other therapists come on. Uh, We're going to talk about grief and loss with chronic illness, because I find that people, a lot of times they have to go through a grief stage in order to, to become sexual. They may have to grieve their, 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 the body that they have first, which, I think is needed, and I see that a lot in my work. And so just so many topics. I mean, I could go on and go on and go on. But really, today's purpose was to share with you my story, who I am, um, and how you can connect with me. Uh, there's a lot of ways that you can connect with me. You could also go to my website, which is www.drleephillips.com. You can also follow me on Instagram at Dr. Lee Phillips. I'm on Facebook at Dr. Lee Phillips. I also blog on this topic quite a bit so you can go to my website and I've got about 15 blogs on my website. I'm also a blogger for Psychology Today. You can find me on there. So anyway, this is the first episode. I wanted to introduce myself, share my story, talk about the different topics that we're going to have on the show. And I'm so excited to to be able to share this with all of you and just with the world. So. It's going to be great. And so, my thing to tell you is that get curious about your partner and get creative with your sex. And I look forward to seeing you soon. Take care. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Sex and Chronic Illness Podcast, part of the Invisible Not Broken Podcast Network. If you haven't already, please take the next 30 seconds to do these three things hit our subscribe button, leave feedback with a review and share this episode with a loved one. Don't forget to check out our official Invisible Not Broken Network Facebook group. Please join us in our community conversations where you can ask questions, connect with fellow invisible illness peers, and make suggestions for the podcast. Please visit facebook.com slash groups slash invisible not broken.